it comes down to organizational culture. And that's really where the element of psychological safety within a workplace comes in. And it doesn't, you don't have to be LGBTQ plus to think about psych psychological safety is for any person in a workspace. And it's how do you really create that space? Well, it's about the intentionality of an organizational culture because a culture is a representation for that organization of its values, its behaviors, and the language that they use. Hi, and welcome to Helping People Perform, the podcast that gives you fascinating insights into those people whose chosen vocation is to help others perform at their best. From consultants to teachers, sports coaches to financial advisors, all of my guests share a passion for getting the most out of individuals, teams, and organizations. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Helping People Perform podcast. Uh, delighted to be joined today uh, by award-winning diversity speaker and consultant and founding CEO at CAF Services. Welcome to the show, Cynthia Fortledge. Thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic. Really looking forward to this. I think there's going to be some interesting topics that we, we cover off and uh, yeah. and keen to learn more about what you do right now and how you help people. But before we do that, uh, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to where you are today? Absolutely. Well, for believe it or not, for 30 years, I was a C-suite technology executive, um, but in Canada, hence the accent. Um, I am British born, but not, uh, but not raised in the UK, right. but I have come home to the UK. Um, so yeah, so I had my corporate career there and, uh, um, basically I had this major epiphany in life, um, that we'll get to and kind of talk about, which yeah. is, you know, part of the reason for the work that I do. And, um, that has led me to, you know, really focus on, um, pivoting away from focusing on technology to really focusing on people. Because what I found was that from a technological standpoint, the technology was, generic we weren't inventing it we were using it right. so that meant for an organization the secret sauce was people in process and so being able to help people maximize their potential and, and kind of bring their whole self their authentic self to an organization became so much more powerful for me mm. unfortunately that meant as a role of the head of technology the fact that i no longer cared how it worked didn't exactly help. So I found that I was not aligned with that work. And in 2019, after a little over a 30 year career, I ended up pivoting completely away um, from to do what was off the side of my desk previously, which is the work that I'm focused on today in the diversity space. Oh, fantastic. And uh, so if we could delve a little bit deeper into yeah. that sort of technology, what first got you into that technology uh, side of it? And, and what was your journey like up to C-Suite? I'm assuming you didn't just jump there from the start. It, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it it definitely was a, a progressional um, story through there. So I started into the world of tech. Um, I mean, this was computers were were in school. Computers in school were 80 column punch cards. Right. Um, you know, people that were getting, you know, uh, early Apple products for the uh, for the schools or Commodore, was, which was a brand, you know, in schools. Um, that really was kind of of interest to me. It also helps that for someone who's not authentically being themselves, you kind of find a way to kind of drift into the background and 
Um, that's why you find a lot of people in tech are very diverse individuals simply because it's a great kind of career where you can kind of step away. Mm. So um, I ended up doing that originally with the um, uh, firm that I was with. And uh, for eight years, I was the sole IT person. So I was kind of figuring everything out. Um, they were going from small mini computer systems to much more major systems. Um, about eight years in, I became a supervisor with one individual. And, you know, it just kind of evolved. And eventually that role by about year 12 morphed into a managerial, a full managerial role. And that took on extra responsibility, dealing with community, chambers of commerce, things like that. Right. And it wasn't until 99, 1999, the, the big <laughs> yeah. era in computing, um, we successfully made it through the whole bit. It, it took quite a bit of money to remediate all of the issues related to systems and dates and everything else. But mm. um, we successfully made it through. And um, in that year, that's when I was made vice president um, and joined the executive suite. And as we just kind of evolved, um, the role of vice president in the organization was very much like a CIO and other organizations. Um, and so everybody just referred to me as a CIO. Um, and, you know, it just kind of evolved from there. And as I was evolving that career path, what I found was, um, you know, you learn lots of lessons, um, you know, we'll talk about it. I mean, the first one, when I was a supervisor, um, so to give you an idea of date, I learned I can't change anybody. Right. And it's really important because that's very much a part of the work I do today is I'm not actually trying to change people mm. today. I'm trying to educate and allow people to make a decision if they want to change. Um, whereas in that time, I was trying to change people to create a particular behavior or to get particular work done. Yep. And you know, you just you can't you can't make them like you. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know, there's lots of lessons there. And eventually, of course, I went through other leadership development programs. Through my career and that really brought a whole other set of skill sets that um when when i pivoted off and started working in the diversity space i actually started doing coaching right. um and i did it till 2021 and i used a lot of those executive skills in the coaching space hmm. um, because it was really good about helping them um i just found emotionally i wasn't fully set up to deal with all of the emotional baggage associated with coaching. Yep. Um, so pivot away. I've stayed with professional mentoring. I am a certified mentor. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I really leave that as much more of a tertiary kind of thing I may do today. It's mm. it's not what I'm really focused on. Um, but it was just this continual evolution of realizing that all of these skills as an executive that I learned really brought it to a head when, you know, I kind of had my 50-year epiphany, you know, at the age of 50. Um, and I used every one of those skills in managing myself and the journey that I was beginning at that point, that was about circa 2016. So um, they came full circle. And it was only at that time that I really learned the full power by using them on myself and to do that. But that also took me in many other directions in terms of you know, spiritual work in terms of, you know, people talk about self-care. Um, everybody would think, oh, well, self-care is I'm going to go to the nail salon, get my nails done, go get a massage. Yeah. Um, no, that's not self-care. Um, that's pampering. It's absolutely delightful. I love to do it when I can do it. But 
self-care is actually doing the deep work and learning to, to do the really deep work inside, um, wrestle some of your demons and being able to transform that into something much more positive. And that's really the space that I lean in and work in today right. is because I've been through that journey and I've dealt with, quote, the transformative effects of all of this work. Brilliant. Um, and I know, you know, it, it, I found myself guilty of this in the past in terms of the, the the stuff that you preach as a coach, as a leader or a manager in any ways, being able to have that uh, ability to turn that back upon yourself yeah. uh, in any circumstance and, and say, right, am I doing what I set, what I advise other people to do? Yeah. You know, it's like, what would, it's, it's why a great coaching conversation is always about, you know, what would you be saying to your friend or your, uh, mm -hmm. your colleague if they were in the situation? Uh, as soon as you start to put yourself in a, a different set of shoes and see yourself, uh, from a different angle it, it mm -hmm. really does help to to open up what's the reality of what's going on right here and and what would i propose other people do and why aren't yeah. i following that advice myself no it, it's so true mm. and you know even related to the the work that i'm doing you know when you talk about in the world of diversity it, the word bias comes up and right. many many people talk about bias in, in a negative context, like shame on you, you have a bias. Well, right. the reality is, and, and pretty much everybody I know admits we all have biases. I have bias, you have bias, our audience has bias, but let's not, yes, bias tells us that there's probably something that needs to change, but what a lot of people don't realize is there's a lot of bias that we all carry that comes from privilege. And so it's not like, you know, shame on you, you've developed this bias that was, no, it just happened to be kind of the family you were born into, the way you were raised, the opportunities that that created because of the schools you went to. A lot of those are not things you had a choice about. Mm -hmm. You just, you, you went through and did them. Now, when you decide to go to post-secondary school or focus on a particular career, and so those are your choices based upon all the privilege you've had up to that point. And so that's when we go from, in management speak, we go from unconscious bias to conscious bias because you've now consciously made a choice to do these things. And in doing so, they create opportunity or privilege. And that privilege creates a bias because right. that now becomes the filter of how you see the world. So exactly as you were saying, it's like we we talk about these things, but it's how to go in. So, I mean, just recently, I totally turned the lens on and I wrote an article. It, it's on psychological safety from a human perspective. I've written one from a, um, with chat GPT, so from an AI perspective. Nice. And it was very kind of step one, step two, step three. And I wrote it very much from a humanistic point of view and the first thing I did was declare all my biases going in. Right. Um, I've never done that. It was just, I'm going to talk about this, but just so you know, here's, and I think it was six or seven biases that I listed. Here's six or seven biases I am very aware that I have when I talk about this subject because they do influence the way I talk about it. And I wanted my audience to be aware of that. And I think wow. that's the first time ever that I've done that with an audience and with an article mm. to actually openly declare hey, I've got these biases. So I still have lots of work to do, yeah. but I know how to do it. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a very powerful thing to do. And uh, yeah. uh, I, I'd be intrigued. I'll, I'll make sure the link to that article is in, okay. the, uh, in the show notes, but uh, I'm yeah. going to have a read of that myself and, and 
test myself out on what are my biases and uh, sure. uh, and and try to be more open on that front and declare them out out where yeah. necessary. So, oh, brilliant. Well, maybe that takes us nicely into uh, what you do now. You know, with CAF services yeah. and the work that you do uh, as a speaker and, and consultant. Well, you know, I've been very blessed as, as I talked a little bit about kind of the journey. Started off in this coaching and so forth. Um, and again, the whole journey that took me there was because at the age of 50, with my youngest out of high school, graduating, um, I came to this life epiphany that I wasn't being authentic. And the authentic authenticity was my gender. Right. And so I actually transitioned my gender um, starting in 2016. I had socially transitioned by 2017. I had medically transitioned and surgically transitioned by the end of 2018. And life's just kind of been life um, right. since that. So I really take the insights as an executive because I've also had extensive board leadership uh, positions as well as a board leader for a feminist organization. So to be a woman with a transgender history, that's how I prefer to refer to myself. Yeah. Um, and to lead a feminist organization is not a common thing. Right. And so it brings me an amazing insight because in Canada, nationally, here I was representing all women in Canada leading this organization. So it actually brings a very strong feminist lens in the work that I do mm -hmm. because I see the inequities in the world between the way men and women or the genders are treated to yeah. deal with it. So that has taken me along with that, along with the fact of now seven years in the diversity space, uh, both informally and formally, um, as well as, you know, my extensive board um, leadership that I talked about, but also from the fact that I have, you know, over 14 different boards and um, two of them as the board chair, board leader, um, along with it. So all of those skills have really equipped me to work in this space and be able to do the dive. So obviously it started dealing with understanding my own journey and putting language to it. And that has kind of evolved in helping others through that. So one of the early things I did, I think it's rather funny was, um, and I still occasionally do it, is I hold a session um, primarily focused for women, but it's called 50 years of male thinking in one hour for women. Right. Um, a little tongue in cheek, but simply what it is, is, you know, when we grow up, we are socialized in our perceived identity, right. um, how people perceive us. And what happens is if you kind of ask, well, how are women socialized versus how are men? Well, it's unwritten. Mm. So that means you have to start trying to decode it. Mm. And so what I do in these sessions is when I'm talking with women is to take the behavior that go, you know, my boyfriend's doing this, my husband's doing this, my, my coworker or boss is doing this. It helped me understand their behavior. And so I was able to start codifying it and really helping them grasp it for the purpose of helping to give that information to those women to empower them to, you know, have the life or career mm. that they were looking for. Mm. And that evolved into the coaching that we had talked about. And then that began, I started working with corporations right. and helping corporations from a diversity perspective not only with quote the you know the the lens of what i call one leader with two genders worth of experience as a lens yeah. that i see things but also the fact that you know i have this deep history 30 years 
being a tech executive so I can look at systems and process and actually understand what things systemically are creating problems from a gender-based perspective when I look at them as well. Mm. So, you know, doing things like that from a consultative, and I'll give you a very, very quick, simple example. Yeah. I was working with a hospital in uh, one of the NHS regions, I believe they're east of London, right. um, to give you an, an, an idea. And they were asking, they're creating a brand new patient intake form. And they were trying to get the language right. And you read through it and it's got he, she, they, you know, it's all over the place. And I went, okay. I said, so if I come in, what do you call me? They go, well, you're a patient. Okay. And I go, but if he comes in, what do you call them? Oh, well, they're a patient. So I said, why don't you just put the word patient instead of trying to worry about all of the pronouns and the whole bit? And guess what? It worked. Yeah. Um, and so that's my system thinking kicking in. And it's like, let's not overcomplicate this. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, you know, if you're talking to a business and they talk about their clients or so forth, well, why mess around with it? Just mm. you, refer to the identity, which is they're all clients. Right. So talk about them in that sense. And that really just simplifies the complexity that we're trying to marry in. Of course, there are appropriate times that we use the detail, but you know, I, somebody was asking once that, you know, when we talk about, say, the labels associated with gender identity, I mean, the, the list that I use is 58. I've heard people have lists over 100. Well, first of all, I only need to remember the one associated with the person that I'm dealing with. Right. Um, and there's 8 million people on the planet. I don't or 8 billion. I don't know all 8 billion. So I don't have to remember 8 billion combinations. So guess what? It's a manageable process to learn the identity because you already do with all of your friends. You just don't think about, yeah. for instance, the pronoun element. So it's aspects like that of trying to simplify what some people perceive as very complex and then just downright education. Like we don't know anything, please help us, give us a 101. Um, and it could be a 101 on gender, a 101 on quote, the transgender experience in the corporate space. Um, it could be on gender-based privilege um, or, most recently, as of middle of February, on psychological safety, especially related to transgender folks in a workplace where there's questions about bathrooms and change rooms and so forth. That's the article. That's kind of the the big topic that I'm touching on and really looking at all of the complex elements that make it up. And it is situational, um, but you know that's kind of the conversations I really love to help organizations solve, which is why... At a very broad base, if you read my profile and byline, it says, I work with organizations at the intersection of sexuality, gender, privilege, and psychological safety. And that's really the space that I work in, in the diversity. I don't touch in a lot of areas outside of that because it's not my expertise. Um, and I know many others who can fill in the gaps, whether it's on um, you know, the ability, disability conversation, yep. uh, neurodiversity, um, racism. So I, I know um, ageism. I know so many amazing practitioners that work in those spaces. Um, I focus on the area that I have deep personal and professional insight to be able to help organizations. Yeah. No, and I think that's, uh, you know, wanted some amazing work and, and very much needed in certainly yeah. in the organizations that I found myself working with over the years, but not necessarily that there was, um, overt you know um issues around 
what was being discussed. It's the fact that it wasn't being discussed. Yeah. And if you were, if you then went to the C-suite or if you went to even a management level and said, how would you cope in this situation? Yeah. You know, and that people have never had that conversation before. And I think that's a the really tricky piece is how how are you finding the organizations that are so there's two elements of organizations one there's the ones that are coming to you and having yeah. those conversations are they scared uh, are they um just unsure as to what's going on do they you know are they doing things from a, le- a legal perspective what's the drive for them to engage with you and uh, and, and how's that been um Yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's. Um, I've had clients come to me from a legal perspective. I've clients who go, we're just trying to learn. Can you help us? Yep. Uh, I've got clients go, we're, we're very advanced. We've got this. Right now, we're focusing on this. Can you help us fill that gap? Right. So, yeah, so I, I get the whole smack. And it's right from, you know, smaller organizations who traditionally don't have dedicated staff focused on kind of the DNI, yep. diversity and inclusion kind of practices. Um, to the large organizations, which sometimes have an entire departments over and above the HR side of things who actually focus on the space. Right. Uh, and I've worked with all of them. So, I mean, I've worked with some, you know, small, you know, um, you know, probably a handful of people kind of organizations yep. to the, the likes of LinkedIn and, and uh, IBM and some others. So I, I've had a breadth, not just in the tech side, by the way, but yeah. um, I have that uh, last year I worked with a couple of banks. Um, that I hadn't before. Um, the the season before, I was working with the um, the travel industry and a provider in the travel space. So um, absolutely, lots of different companies, lots of different reasons, and it's really just helping them, uh, you know, kind of figure it out. And now more people are kind of going, okay, you help fill a spot, mm. but now that makes us go, well, how do we go on this journey? Because it ultimately, much like any organization it comes down to organizational culture. And that's really where the element of psychological safety right. within a workplace comes in. And it doesn't, you don't have to be LGBTQ plus yeah. to think about psych- psychological safety is for any person in a workspace. And it's how do you really create that space? Well, it's about the intentionality of an organizational culture mm-hmm. because a culture is a representation for that organization of its values, its behaviors, and the language that they use, yeah. right? They always say, you you know the health of an organization by the behavior they tolerate, the worst behavior they tolerate. Right. Right? And so if you find there's some absolutely egregious behavior and the organization tolerates it, well, then you know that's really a status of the culture of the organization. So organizations that want to create a place where everyone feels safe and wants to belong into that organization those are the companies that i really connect with the most and those are the ones that really value what i bring to the table yeah brilliant stuff and uh um uh yeah because I, I know you know as i said conversations and we've had conversations in the past about um uh, some difficult conversations that need to be had uh, or when do you when, when do i step in you know it, you know it, uh, uh, we don't need to go too much into this, but we were in a joint situation where I felt uncomfortable with the way somebody else was talking, but I wasn't sure whether or not I should be chipping in and and stepping over you in that situation because you were the expert and you were the one with the lived experience. Yeah. But I also didn't want to 
say that that was you know not call it out because it wasn't acceptable behavior in my view so sure. um, it's those conversations that are a tough one to have aren't they and, and they're, they're a tough one to understand but until we have those conversations until we open up and, and think about how do we give everybody the psychological safety everybody the same yeah. opportunities uh, to be involved in the organization then one it's just simply isn't fair is the first thing but two from a business perspective it doesn't it doesn't make sense because you are there are direct direct links between the way people are feeling due to those elements and their actual performance which leads yeah. to business performance so yes. this isn't this isn't one of the a soft area this is a direct <laughs> no. link to bottom line as well isn't it well absolutely and if you go back um, go back five, six years. If you look at the work that folks were doing in the diversity space, it was very much focused on the business value was that magical 30% performance improvement, you know, at the, uh, on the bottom line mm. by having a diverse, you know, workforce. And again, the implied, the implicit aspect was, you know, all of this idea of, you know, intentional cultures and psychologically safe and, so forth, which not many people actually experience, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So there's still lots of work to do, which I guess is good for me. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's about people, right? And people aren't things that they're human beings. And we all have, I always go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And the third level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is love and belonging. We all have a psychological need to belong. Mm. Um, so we want to belong in societies. We want to belong, you know, within our work organizations. So i.e. within the societies, the cultures of the organization. Um, we want to, we just want to belong. Yeah. Um, nobody wants to quote, you know, um, and overrule somebody else. And especially when you are of a marginalized identity and there is actually a hierarchy of privilege, which really talks to this idea of based upon different identities within different income brackets or socioeconomic status, you can actually kind of pinpoint where it is. So believe it or not, you know, as a white woman with a transgender history, so LGBTQ plus, um, I'm two thirds of the way down that privilege scale. Wow. Um, yet at the very bottom of it is a woman of color who's LGBTQ plus yeah. is at the bottom of that privilege chain. Wow. So, I mean, even on the bottom, I can still carry a lot of privilege to help uplift those who are below me. Yeah. But at the very top are, you know, white male, mm -hmm. um, typically identifying as straight, or heterosexual, and they're at the top of the food chain mm. in terms of that uh, hierarchy. White women, cisgender women, mm. are second on the list. So again, when we talk about it, you know, there's this huge disparity between because there's lots of other identities that fall within there yeah. that you know are defined. So when we look at all of this and kind of keep in mind what Maslow says, realize that the more you kind of are down that scale you're also lower on Maslow scale to a large degree because you go from, of course, the very first level of Maslow's, we're fighting for survival. Yep. And so it's a fight or flight response to everything that happens. Um, and so you got to realize that people who are don't carry the power and privilege that you do may be 
at that level and they're actually thinking in a fight or flight mode right. so you go well just why is everything so aggressive mm. because they're fighting for their existence mm. um the next level is you know where you know people start to actually um i just relabeled it in in the work that i do um it, you're existing Right? right you're not you're not fighting for survival you've got housing you probably have some form of income and so forth you're existing mm. in society but you're not contributing and that's where the next level that's where the magic happens that's where you start to unlock somebody's full potential because you start to get them in a place where they feel like they belong they can bring their full authentic self to work now i mean everybody throws that word around and just to clarify I'm not talking about just LGBTQ plus people here. Every one of us does not bring our full authentic self to work. We we're always hiding, putting something behind. We 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 have quote a work face. Um, I, I've talked to some women that say that you know when they get ready in the morning they quote, put on their armor to walk into the corporate world. Yeah. Whatever it is, we're not allowed to be authentic. Mm. Doesn't matter who you are, and so. The, the ideas that I'm talking about is I want everyone to feel safe so they can all be authentic and we can all kind of take down our guard a little bit and actually interact in human mm. being. And that doesn't mean we agree, mm. but it means we can interact. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And um, we can talk about this for hours, I'm sure. And uh, just one of the other bits that came to mind yeah. in, in one of the previous conversations that we had as well, we talked about that element of pale male and stale and my, my personal reflection is i am pale i am male but i and i choose not you're to not do, stale but i choose not to do anything about those, those yeah. two things but i'm i'm choosing that it's the stale bit that i've i can manage yeah and it, i think it's when people talk about almost in a, a negative way of oh I'm, I'm i'm being discriminated against because i'm pale male and stale well being pale and male, put, first of all, puts you very top of that privilege yes. <laughs> list, and you don't have to be stale. You know, no. you can you can choose to change yeah. your behaviours and and listen more and have these conversations and and just yeah. bring yourself to work, but allow others to bring their authentic self as well, isn't it? Absolutely, and you know, Paul, think of it this way: so you're pale. It's the way you were born. You can't change that. Yeah, just as everyone else. So that right. So yeah, they're definitely biased. Yep. As you said, it's in there. You can work on that because because you're not stale, right? You're male. Imagine the privilege it is to actually agree with the identity that you were given at birth based upon a physical part of your body. Yeah. And to not, because they can't see into your body, nor do you have language, of course, when you're born. So you right. can't tell them who you are. So that is a privilege. Mm. And a lot of people don't think of it that way is, mm. guess what? Actually knowing you go, well, I'm male. Yep, I agree with that. What a privilege Yeah. Um, to deal with it. And as you already talked about the sale piece. So again, those pieces are something, both of them, you really had no control over. It's just thankful for the second one. You do agree. Mm. And that's what actually gives you privilege is the fact that you agree, not the fact that that's how you were born. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> brilliant stuff. <laughs> Um, maybe let's uh, focus on something slightly different, which is about how you help yourself perform. You know, yes. who do you go to? What do you do to help you be the best you in the work that you do? Absolutely. Well, you know, there's quite a few things. So rattle through them very quickly. Number one is very spiritual. So I combine a number of different practices. I use as many of them as I possibly can. 
all the way from, quote, what would be described as some new age, you know, crystal energy work, mm -hmm. uh, light and sound work, um, to, you know, um, dealing with indigenous cultures and smudging as a way to, quote, cleanse my soul, mm -hmm. um, to do that into, you know, um, very ancient, you know, uh, Eastern practices of meditation and so forth and allowing me to really go in uh, to deal with it, along with some, you know, breath work um, into that to really get me, quote, zoned in and just kind of live in that space um, doing the deep work. So that's some of the aspects. Um, of course, having, you know, a good group of uh, friends, it's not in, uh, measured in quantity, it's in quality. Yeah. So I have uh, less than a handful of key friends that I can can talk through things that are in my head and what's going on. Um, I do have a mental health professional. And one of my friends is a professional coach. And we've agreed she's not my official coach, but she seems to be coaching me a lot these days. <laughs> um, and I gladly take all of the guidance and advice and, you know, reflecting on the work that, uh, that needs to be done, because sometimes it's the obvious, you just don't see yourself. Yeah. And, and somebody has to point at you go, of course. Yeah. So, so lots of different techniques that I'm doing in order to bring my best self. And honestly, I need two down days a week and not just necessarily the weekend mm. because it just takes such a toll um, to really take on and help people from really what is a heart centered mm. role. Some wonderful stuff there. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that word that i've noted down here is, is around reflection you know whether it's breath work whether it's uh yoga whatever it is for you uh that it's that element of reflection and looking inwards firstly to you know understand your true self and then secondly to get yourself in that zone of how am i going to operate and uh, and bring my full self to yeah. the the work that i've got in front of me right now oh, absolutely so maybe a couple of slightly different questions then in yeah. terms of if you had the opportunity to work with any individual team or organization with the skill set that you've got, yeah. who would you want that to be? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I love a lot of the folks that I'm doing. I mean, to me, there's just so, so many um, organizations, um, groups that need the work, um, certainly in the UK specifically, um, the government. Oh, my gosh, they they need a lot of this work. Um, I don't know that I'm up for uh, changing the whole government, but I would certainly love a shot to work with the leadership community um, in business that that impact or influence government, but also the leaders in government that influence policy right. in order to you know help drive some education and change. Yeah. Ah, no, no small feat then. <laughs> Good. Yeah. No. Uh, and similarly. Um, if you were able to sit down and have a coffee, have a drink, have a meal with somebody to learn from them to help yeah. your own performance, who would you want that to be? My mom. Right. She, she's she been gone half a dozen years. Hmm. Um, it's odd. It It's not until she was gone and a number of years have passed that I realized I really just, I just took her for granted. Like right. she was always there in my life. Um, when I think of things and I think back on them, it was always there. And I would just love an opportunity to sit down and reflect on everything where I'm at with my mom and hear kind of her insights and what she has to offer. Um, she wasn't perfect. She wasn't, quote, woke. Right. Um, but you know what? She was working at it. And uh, I would just love an opportunity to do that again. Oh, wonderful. Um, 
So, just to close out then, yeah. how do people find out more? How do people get in touch and find out more about the great work you do? Well, thank you. It's um, They can obviously on my website at www.cynthiafortledge.com. Yep. And that's C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-F-O-R-T-L-A-G-E.com. Yep. Um, you can also find me on um, Instagram or TikTok at, at CAF Services, all one word. And of course, through LinkedIn, which is my preferred business networking um, site and being able to connect through there. I am on lots of other, you know, I still have what I call a tertiary uh, presence on Twitter. I have a tertiary presence on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, but those are not really where I'm looking to connect with audiences and to build. I'm really looking to do it. Um, things like LinkedIn, Instagram, um, and TikTok. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I'm, I'm doing the same at the moment as well, focusing on LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't knocked down with the kids yet to get into the tickety-tockety, but I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll get there at some point, I'm sure. Um, Cynthia, it's been a fascinating conversation and really enjoyed uh, chatting with you about this today and, and love the work that you're doing to help organisations and help people perform at their best. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard, then please give the podcast a rate, review and share. I'm Paul Teasdale, and from sausage making to banking, oil and gas to Formula One, I help people perform. If you'd like to find out more and have a conversation, contact me via helpingpeopleperform.com.